Emory University's Goizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. And in an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Goizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Guizueta Business School and your host. Today I'll be joined by Marina Cooley. We're exploring the battle against busyness and ways to bring balance back to our lives. We'll dig into the history of work-life balance, factors that have pushed us into overdrive, and steps that individuals and institutions can take to even the scale. Marina is an assistant professor in the practice of marketing at Guizueta Business School. Prior to joining Guizueta, Marina spent more than 15 years in strategic marketing roles at Coca-Cola and Lava and served as a management consultant at IBM. A storyteller at heart, she has been featured in the New York Times and Yahoo Finance and honored as one of Poets and Quants' 40 Under 40 Best MBA Professors. Currently, she teaches a class on personal development to more than 800 undergraduate students each year, as well as a seminar on life design to MBA students. Welcome, Marina. Thank you, Melanie. I'm so happy to be here. Now, this episode is airing in January, and many of us have made some pretty big resolutions around this time. For me, as a working mom, finding balance is almost always at the top of my list. Uh, You recently declared that you're waging a battle against busyness. So how's it been going, and why do you think that's so important? I'll go a little bit broader than myself and just share that according to time use studies, which tracks how Americans spend their time, leisure time is going up. So the fact that you don't find balance is very strange because the data would suggest you have more free time than you've ever had before in history. Is that what it feels like? No. (laughs) Right. And so what's really happening is the data is very cumulative. And so what we need to do is split up the data um, and find an incredible irony within it. And that is if you are underemployed, um, actually you're swimming in leisure time. Now, you might spend a lot of your time worrying about how to pay rent, but on paper you have lots of leisure time. If you are highly educated with a highly paying job, then you have very little leisure time. It's when we add up these two categories together that the data is very misleading. And you and I and a lot of our listeners, we belong to this latter category. Um, And so I'm going to go ahead and put a huge asterisk on this entire conversation that we're going to have because we are privileged to be talking about this. There are a lot of people solving a problem of what to eat, how to stay warm. So the problem of busyness uh, is our privilege to solve. And there is a term for people like us. Uh, a Swedish economist, uh, Stefan Linder, coined this. We are the harried leisure class. Um, essentially, his finding is that as people accrue more wealth, they have more consumption available to them. And so they start packing their day more and more. Mm-hmm. Does that does that track? I think so. And I've also witnessed and myself partaken in kind of the badge of honor of busyness, uh-huh. which feels connected a bit. It does. Um, This is, I think, a a painting of that. Let's create a scenario. You have a job and you have kids, and your job provides you with disposable income. So you decide to start a small home renovation, 
which then leads to contractors emailing you, popping in and out of your house. The tub faucet gets delayed, so you can't start the tile. You're spending your day fielding emails and troubleshooting. You've got a kid in gymnastics. They've got piano on weekdays, soccer on the weekend. Your other kid has ballet, coding, and soccer. So now you're shuttling everyone to all of their activities. Um, you want to stay healthy, so you know it's important to include cycling two days a week, Pilates twice a week. Um, you're doing all of these self-care routines, and pretty soon your calendar is exploding. And also, you want more and more. So then you realize that you need to keep your job in order to keep all of this afloat. And in fact, more would be nice. So then you do more at your job so that you can hopefully get promoted. Um, and to me, this is the catch-22 of disposable income. You want more and more. You stack your calendar to a point where you are operating on the margins. Not a single thing can go wrong. Or you start missing um, commitments. You start disappointing people. Those people might be your kids, your coworkers, the people in your life, your boss. Um, you become harried. I think the term we use um, outside of academia is hot mess. <laughs> um, and that's what I'm fighting against. It's the self-induced stress created merely by the fact that we have so many options available and the market pressures to exercise them. So how is it going for you? Uh, sometimes great. Sometimes I make errors. What I try to do is consistently reflect that the way I spend my time connects to my value system. I have learned that when I overcommit and overstock my calendar and have no breathing room in between, I parent in a way that I do not like. I spend most of my time yelling at my kids to hurry. I'm pretty sure that that is going to raise harried humans. Um, when my calendar is overstacked, I treat everyone like they are an appointment to be kept on time. I don't like this version of myself. And that's why this battle is so important to me. I, I feel you. I think, um, you know, there's a rigidness to the schedule that comes about when you're so packed where there's no time for flexibility or innovation or just the magic of life to creep in. So I appreciate you sharing that even someone who is waging that battle has moments where it's difficult. I don't want to come across um, as if I'm making judgments. I have observed as I've slowed down just how harried people around me are. And I find it just so deeply interesting. I'm obsessed with this topic. Um, and I hope to do anything I can to build awareness that we are making the decisions to overconsume and that a lot of those decisions are leading to this feeling of burnout, mental health struggles, anxiety, poor sleep. Yeah, and we're passing those on. And we're <laughs> passing those on. Mm -hmm. That's the scary thing. Well, I know in your research, you have likely uncovered some of the key drivers and influencers on busyness, and you've talked about some of these. Um, but can you share more about um, what you think has really pushed us into overdrive? This is a great place for us to start. I started deep diving and making this the main focus of my research in 2021. I essentially went through all of the latest data, papers, books, and 
there was such an overwhelming amount of data to explain our busyness that I needed to create a systematic way to think about the categories. And I ended up coming up with five key explanations for why we are busy. Uh, number one, no surprise here, but this is this workism. The way that often in America we use work as an almost religion. It is the thing that gives us purpose. It allows us to self-actualize. We have attached so much expectation to what work is going to give us. And that, of course, makes work a very large component of our life. To build on that, though, we also do what is called LARPing work, live action role-playing work. And that is when we're not working, we also want to appear like we're working. Somebody slacks you at 8 p.m., what do you do? You respond. You show that you are the ideal worker, and of course you are ready to go. And the people on your team, they see you responding to the Slack at 8 p.m., so what do they do? They respond at 9 p.m. And we are creating these signals that let people know we are always on and always available. Um, of course that's gonna make you feel busy. Uh, number two, I call this category parenting as a verb and other unpaid labor. You should know that in 1965, the average time that parents, um, particularly mothers, spent in active childcare uh, was under an hour. There were only about 40% of women in the workforce. Um, today, that number is more like 75%, and we are doing active parenting for more than two hours a day. The numbers of that are are mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. We're not just working, but we're finding ways um, to parent for more hours. And this doesn't apply to just children. Um, same thing's happening with household labor. We have added washers, dryers, dishwashers to our life. Do you know how much time we're saving on household tasks? How much? Zero. Ugh. Not one single minute has changed from the cumulative amount of time that we spent on housework. Hmm. Because we just up the standards. Mm -hmm. um, number three is this cult of self-improvement. We want to track our steps, our macros, our sleep. These very things that make us human now become ways to measure ourselves. Um, number four, uh, why hobby when you can side hustle? So as soon as any of us show an aptitude, people suggest that we open an Etsy shop, start a consulting business. Why bother doing something if you can't monetize it? And so essentially we, we, take the, we take the leisure of way. Once you start monetizing the hobby, the love for it changes. Um, and then finally, uh, number five, this is, this is the elephant in the room. This is what supersizes the other four things and that's the impact of social media. Whereas before you may have been comparing yourself to the people directly in your life, now you can compare yourself to everyone on your social feed. I think that we are very savvy with understanding that a macro influencer has a different life than we do. What I find much more dangerous are the micro influencers that likely resemble us but are just a little bit prettier <laughs> or they have just a little bit more money and their home is just a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. And we surround ourselves with so much noise, um, with so much comparison, that it, is, it sets off the more, more, more. Mm -hmm. 
those are the five categories I think most things fall into to help explain why we have eradicated leisure from our lives Mm -hmm. and accepted busyness. Well, going back to you, Marina, now that you've identified these five causes for busyness, what have you changed in your own behavior? And is it helping? Knowing these culprits, yes, Melanie, it has helped me a lot. I, I am cognizant that I cannot do five major overhauls of my life all at once. So I have chosen a few areas of focus. Um, in terms of parenting, I mean, this is a really big one right now. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. I think our kids might actually be very similar ages. Yep, yep. I've got seven and ten. Okay. Um, my husband and I have created a value system, and we try to follow that. And our value system is generally about quality time as a whole family, as a higher priority than us orbiting ourselves around kids' activities. So once we, once we have that value system in place, it makes making decisions a lot easier about the sports and other um, development opportunities available to children to make sure that we have the perfect cultivated crops. And I, I can say that we are doing really well here, and I had a high moment as a parent last week. Um, my kids had found a bunch of tiny rocks, like 20 little rocks, and I had a, a friend stop by and my kids entertained themselves for about two hours and they created a museum with rock exhibits. Aww. And my friend looked over at this and she said, your kids have been busy for two hours with rocks. Yeah. I said, yeah, they're really good at that because they're not overstimulated. So this I'm considering a major win and it has taken us a lot of work to not be pressured to schedule them in three activities each. Absolutely. Even at those young ages, there is that pressure. And then um, with social media, I have to spend a a ton of time um, in order to teach content marketing. That's my specialty. But ironically, being so deep in social media, in studying influencers and studying content creation, I have learned how much of what we see is artificial and so I consume social media with a full understanding that what I am seeing is mostly not real and that's helpful it's very freeing it often feels like busyness is a given that it's really been around forever but what's the history Um, have there been any bright spots throughout history that we can lean on and learn from I mentioned to you that I have been studying this topic intensively since 2021. And one thing that I've also done to organize my research is created a timeline of of key historic events that have shaped the way that we're living now. I will do um, a very quick version of some of those key events and call out a few bright spots. Essentially, we'll start with, okay, we're in this pre-capitalist society, we do farming and subsistence work, and the way that the work hours are allocated is that they line up to a harvest and sunlight hours. There's nothing to consume, which means that nobody works any more than they need to to feed their family. Then um, we start to introduce textile centers. Then we start to introduce textile centers um, in Europe. And we need work clocks. This is around the 1400s. We need a way to make sure that workers know when to arrive, when to eat, 
and when to end the day. The factory workday was around 12 hours. Hundreds of years pass. Eventually, workers rebel, form unions, and we get to this construct of an eight-hour workday. But if you think about knowledge work today, we are mimicking this exactly. There's a start time, there's an end time, and there's a pseudo break for lunch. Eight to five, you eat lunch 12 to one. We have World War I, we have World War II, all of the men are going to the war front, and we end up having to have women enter the workforce. And this will go on to have major implications, as you and I both know. In the post-war era, we have what you are referring to as a bright spot. Hobbies were huge. The way that people created self-identity was through the hobbies that they pursued. There were bridge clubs, bowling clubs, tennis clubs, poetry clubs, cooking clubs. People were being defined by their hobbies. Um, We had a time of economic prosperity, job security. Um, In the background of this, women were no longer needed in the workforce and were being pushed out back into their roles of homemakers. Um, And then something interesting happened with the role of children. We stopped needing them to be helpful, and instead they became precious. We'll revisit both of those things momentarily. Um, Economically, though, the golden time crumbled in 1974. We have Watergate, Vietnam, oil prices, inflation, recession. And in the 80s, um, people start working overtime, limiting vacations, paid time off. The the job security is not there, and people are fighting as hard as they can to to keep hold of their employment. And then in the 90s, we go on to have massive layoffs. Um, In 1993 alone, Sears laid off 50,000 workers. Uh, Xerox cut 10,000 jobs. IBM let 60,000 people go. It was just, it was the first time that this understanding that you could have a career at one employer for your life, that relationship broke. I think you can see how our relationship with work today um, and how, you know, right now we're talking about words like burnout, quietly quitting, great resignation, Those terms are not a result of COVID. Those terms are a a result of decades of relationships between employer and employee and changing economic times. I'm going to go back to those women and children now. It was clear um, after women had a taste in the workforce that they wanted to participate in it. So around the 1970s, um, they were making moves to enter the workforce. And we started as a country talking about a future family structure because if we have dual income households, what kind of infrastructure do we as a country need to support that? And so um, there was a bill called the Comprehensive Child Development Act that essentially wanted to create daycare centers that would be paid by the government. So you you and I both have kids in elementary school. Um, We go to a public school that is a public good. And so essentially, if we were going to have dual income households, we were going to have childcare centers. This bill um, was supported um, by the public, and it was actually supported in a bipartisan manner. Mm-hmm. There was one person, though, that really hated the bill, um, and that is Pat Buchanan, um, a name that none of us are probably thinking about very often. Um, Buchanan was never an elected position, um, but he was a consultant in the Nixon, Ford, Reagan administration, and he had a very strong perspective that women belonged at home. And he essentially convinced Nixon and others that a bill for creating um, a national child care system would weaken the family unit, that it was un-American, 
and we never saw a bill like this again. So what ends up happening is that everyone in America that has children under the age of six is on their own. You can find a daycare, a nanny, an au pair. You can stay home, but you are going to figure it out. And that's when we start making these tricky decisions. You have two kids. You have three kids. Well, how much does it cost to find childcare for those kids? Is it more or less than the amount of money that you can make? Um, and then this model of daycare is maybe the worst business model. There's not a single winner. The cost is too expensive for most parents, and the cost to serve is too expensive for most centers to stay in business. We have decided that childcare cannot be a public good because early childhood development is so important that each family needs to make their own decisions. So if early childhood education is this important to us, then we better have really great people taking care of our children. They need to have an education in early childhood development, maybe a master's degree. The average daycare worker gets paid $13.71 an hour. That is less than a school bus driver. It is less than a parking attendant. It is less than we pay for animal caretakers. It's comical. I think we spend a lot of energy talking about maternity leave policies, and I think we should be spending a lot more time talking about those for six years. Absolutely. I know that that, that education, that foundation is so important to future success. So let's get to the heart of it. Why is living a balanced life important? How can finding leisure and joy positively impact performance in the workplace? I am so glad you asked this question exactly like this because I just want to say, ah, uh, I hate the premise that if I allow myself joy, then I will be a better employee. <laughs> Truly, ah, uh, what is the point of being human if not to experience joy and leisure? And I know that this really gets at this idea of do we work to live or live to work? And the reason that I am so passionate about this topic is because I firmly believe that the work should enable a beautiful life. And if you really sit down and make a list of your key moments from 2023, which is an exercise that I do, I think that of my 35 key memories, 34 of them will have nothing to do with work. Now, does the data suggest that people who take time for leisure and avoid burnout, are they better workers? Yes. But I think that the most beautiful part of life is the joy and the leisure. Absolutely. Do you have you have you found any figures on joy and leisure and just how much we're getting of that? According to time use data, women our age are getting 30 hours of leisure a week, which is so comical. <laughs> yeah. Um, because uh, I think these time use studies believe that me driving my kids to an activity qualifies as leisure since that's a choice that I'm making. Mm -hmm. How many hours do you feel like you're getting? <sighs> Probably 10. If I consider working out leisure or, you know, having those quick 10 minutes where I'm daydreaming. Um, but I do feel like most of my time is incredibly fragmented where if I have six minutes, I'm using it to do something. 
um, versus, you know, watching the leaves fall. <laughs> your, your working out is a great example of is it leisure mm-hmm. or is it something else? And I'll take us back to these culprits that are often taking leisure from our lives. When we make the, the working out some part of self-improvement where you are tracking I think it takes away I think it takes away this title of leisure. So leisure it needs to be for leisure's sake. Absolutely. <laughs> and I know that that is incredibly hard. We come from a long history of puritans um one interesting thing that I had found was um there was a law uh, that the puritans passed in the 1600s against idleness. You could actually be imprisoned for showing signs of laziness. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So it's incredibly hard for us to say, I, I am worth leisure. Mm-hmm. I can have leisure. It is not something to earn. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an incredibly radically different mindset. Um, but that, that is where I am personally trying to get to, mm-hmm. to allow myself the beautiful things of life without equating it to something that I'm earning. Yeah. No, it's funny because I'm bargaining with myself all the time on this front. Like, I'm like, well, maybe I could, instead of going for a walk in the woods, I could start walking to Coisweta. So that way I'm accomplishing something while I'm doing it and, you know, trying to make one thing equal four so that then I can accomplish my calendar. Yeah. <laughs> um, and th- so think about what your brain is like mm-hmm. during those. Why, why do you feel overwhelmed? Why do you feel busy? Mm-hmm. Because you're trying to do four things <laughs> in the place of one. Right. And there's less freedom to it, right? If you're if you're trying to get into the office, then you're much likely in the mindset where you're going to stop and look at a flower or talk to a friend or, you know, the flexibility kind of flies out the window and opportunity operating on the margins Mm -hmm. nothing extra can happen yeah and that's definitely something I do not want to teach to my girls um but I'm likely to (laughs) do every day (laughs) um well what do we do about this so you teach a class at Coisweta Business School to more than 800 undergraduate students each year and its focus is really giving students the tools and reflection they need for a balanced life So what's some of your top advice and how can we get there? I try to approach these courses with a zero lecture strategy. We do a lot of exercises to help illustrate and help students better understand how they spend their time and how fast life can pass by if you're not reflecting. Um, I think when students start the class, they assume that what we mean by reflecting is that they need to go to the park, sit on a bench, and stare out into the meadow. Mm -hmm. Um, And many of us that are at Goizueta Business School are wired in a very different way. A lot of us are very type A. um, And so I try to meet the students exactly where they are. And I thought I would share a few exercises that we do in case anyone wants to try them. That would be great. One exercise is that you close the books on a month. Again, very easy for business school students to grasp because think about what a business does. At the end of every month, Mm -hmm. they close the books. They ask themselves, 
what worked, what didn't, what changes do we make for the next period, and what are the goals that we are prioritizing as we move forward. So I have my students start this discipline of closing the books on each month of their lives. You take 20 minutes and you journal. I have um, done this every single month for years. So I'll walk you through the prompts and we're at a beautiful time to do this. So let's say it's January 31. You're gonna check in on the goals that you had in the previous month. Did you meet them? You identify three lessons that you learned in January. You identify three time adjustments that you wanna bring into the month going forward. And you identify the goals that you are prioritizing for this upcoming month. You do this every single month, year after year. And I think that that clarity of what is important to you about how you're spending your time, which is your most finite resource, you start to get much better at understanding what you have time for. Do you ever look back? All the time. (laughs) Yes. There's a few ways that I look back. Um, One, I love looking at an entire year in its sitting. So again, we're at this beautiful moment of time. I'm looking at 2023 as a whole. Um, And I I just love going through and understanding how much actually happens in one year. Mm -hmm. It actually is an incredible confidence boost because I look at these goals that I'm making month after month and I am seeing my check marks. And it is just a huge moment of like, wow, I I am doing what I say. Mm -hmm. The place that I think I get the most value is understanding the time adjustments that I need to make in the month going forward. As you can see, I have this incredible battle with busyness that I am on and I make mistakes all the time. That to me is the most important field. I really look back at the month that happened and understand what did I say yes to that should have been a no. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I document that and I review that consistently as I'm being asked to do the next thing. Um, The future self, my future self, is my best friend. Every time that we are overcommitting, every time we are agreeing to to do something um, that we don't actually have time to do for, the person that suffers is your future self. And that that person, my future self, is someone I deeply respect and love. And so I try to be kind to them because the decisions I make today will impact the future self 30 days from now. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. So we've talked a lot about ways we can help ourselves, but it's not all on us. Um, What are some of the systemic changes needed to support balance? The subsidized daycare you can see I'm very passionate about. We have to account for childcare ages three months to six. That is systemic. Um, making a change would improve the work-life balance of millions of Americans. I am also a fan of experimenting with things like four-day work weeks, um, meeting free days, give people space to think. I think this um, construct in academia of a sabbatical is probably something that is necessary in corporate America as well. If we are going to be working for 40 years I think at some point we need a few pauses where we take six months and and clear the minds. Um, five weeks of vacation would be great. Um, 
I love the idea of a mandatory um, corporate email shutoff between the hours of 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. Just shut it down. Um, I know that these all sound very revolutionary, but I do want to point out that three years ago, the idea of hybrid work where you would pop into the office one or two days seemed incredibly unachievable. And here we are with that as a norm. And I think, you know, looking back as you were giving the history of work and seeing how little has changed from the 1400s is pretty eye-opening. And we have some, some opportunities to make change. So you're obviously on quite a journey here, and I'm sure the battle against busyness is a daily pursuit. When you do find the time, what brings you joy? I find a lot of time for joy because, as you can see, that's my, that's my central theme. Um, I find that as an adult with a job, with children, with all, all kinds of responsibilities, my best way of accessing joy is by being a planner. The idea that I'm going to spontaneously walk into a fun, unplanned day is, is not real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you can relate to that. Yes. What I like to do is plan a month forward. I systematically fill a calendar with the things that are important to me. The, the date nights, time with my parents, time with my best girlfriends, um, schedule you know, dinners with our couple friends, those things go on the calendar first. Then I am layering on a lot of tennis. I probably play three to four times a week. Um, I read about two books a week for pleasure. So I fill that calendar with all those things that make me happy, that make me excited to be alive and just fill me with joy. And that allows me to understand what time I have to do the work. And so when we create these constraints, right? So let's say, yes, we're working this eight to five, which is an artificial constraint that comes from hundreds of years ago. If we create our own constraints of what it takes to get the work done, we tend to do a lot less BS. I turn off my phone. It lives on do not disturb mode. I understand the three things I must get done and I do them. That is what allows me to do all of this other stuff. I realize it sounds like I am just like swimming in time. Two books a week, three three tennis games. Um, uh, I am not swimming in time. I am coming off of a semester where I taught 16 and a half credit hours. The normal load is nine. I essentially work two jobs. Um, so false. Like many of you, my work takes up a lot of time. Mm-hmm. But by putting those things on the calendar, I'm accessing uninterrupted chunks Mm -hmm. of leisure time. Instead of getting 12 minutes here and 12 minutes here, I'm getting this, here is this one hour. Mm -hmm. My big wish as we are leaving 2023, a lot of you are probably more open-minded now to change than at any other point in the year. And you probably do have some feelings of of overwhelm. You might have some feelings of a consumption hangover (laughs) because the holidays really bring that out in us. And so my, my message to you is to remember that we are so privileged that we get to think about how we spend our time. So make sure that the things you choose serve you and deliver on your value system. 
quality over quantity, say no, and don't let busyness make your life go so fast that you miss it. So cheers to 2024. I hope all of us can be a little less harried. Marina Cooley is an assistant professor in the practice of marketing at Guisbeta Business School. She joined today to talk about battling busyness and finding a more balanced life. Thank you, Marina. I'm so happy to be here. Happy New Year. For more information about the Guisbeta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.